afternoon, everyone. This is the 55th Fireside Chat with Tom Campbell and the server being run by Oliver Weiss, and Justin will be the editor. Um, we can go ahead with Eric, please. Um, I'll start asking the first question. Okay. Uh, thank you, Donna. Yes. So my first question is about the relationship between the PMR rule set and paranormal abilities. Um, in the YouTube comment section, someone asked you whether the VR rule set limits our connectivity to the larger consciousness system if the brain is damaged. In your answer, you said, I don't think so. We are consciousness. Uh, we connect to the larger consciousness system directly. We do not connect to the larger consciousness system through the body. The VR rule set determines what the IOC can instruct the virtual body to do or accomplish within the VR. Thus, the rule set limits the IOC's choices within the VR, but not its choices outside of the VR. My question is, how do we reconcile this with the fact that foods, drugs, and binaural beats do seem, seem to influence our connectivity to the LCS? If someone is a very experienced meditator and very skilled at doing all the paranormal things, like going out of body, accessing the databases, and so on, wouldn't you say that something like a traumatic brain injury could cause that person to lose their paranormal abilities? Or do these abilities transcend the constraints of the PMR rule set? Well, that's an interesting question, Eric. All right. Uh, part of it, I think, is a little confusion between the IUOC and the Free Will Awareness Unit. Okay, so the Free Will Awareness Unit is just a subset of the IUOC, and that subset is logged on, you know, 100%. It's logged on exclusively with the avatar. And in its viewpoint, all reality is only what the avatar senses. That's, it's, you know, that's all the reality it gets. So it can only access things that the avatar allows it to access. So if that avatar um, yes, has a has an accident or takes a drug or whatever, then the the um, constraints that the free will awareness unit has can get bigger or can get smaller. So if it takes some uh, DMT, say, or ayahuasca, then those constraints may be loosened, at least in some way. You know, some portion of those constraints may be loosened. Or if it gets brain damaged, some constraints may be added where it can't do things that it used to do. It can't remember. It can't access memory. You know, so in that case, yes, there's a, you know, there's definitely um, constraints that the avatar brings to the picture. Now, if you had an avatar and that avatar was doing paranormal things, okay, that requires the avatar to, um, you know, get in a, um, you know, because the, the free will awareness unit, I guess, uh, constrained by the avatar, needs to be able to be in a, a, a consciousness state, usually a theta state. It needs to not have a lot of noise in its mind. It needs to be able to focus. It needs to have a clear intent and all those sorts of things. So if it has a, if it gets into some kind of physical problem, an, an accident or something else, and it can't meet those conditions anymore, its mind is kind of wild or racing or it becomes hyperactive or other sorts of things, then yes, that would get in the way of being able to, you know, do the paranormal things. It's, uh, again, the, the body, the body does create constraints that, you know, have to happen. So some people have different brain chemistry and because of that, uh, it said that they have, you know, ADD, which means they can't it's very hard for them to focus. It's very hard for them to get their mind to, to be quiet. Meditation is, is a very difficult thing for them because the mind seems to be hyperactive all the time. So, yes, those that makes meditation hard. That makes doing paranormal things hard because they just, you know, have those uh, limitations. So there is that connection. But that doesn't really affect the IUOC. The IOUC is above all of that. 
it's the it's the superset, you know, if you will. The IOC is the big thing, and the Free Will Awareness Unit is just a subset of that that's logged on. So the IU the IUOC is not really affected by what happens to the body. Only the Free Will Awareness Unit that's logged onto that body is really affected. So maybe that's why my answer about the IUOC, you know, didn't talk about these various, you know, uh, limitations that one can get from the body. Because the IOUC, I, I probably should say, the individuated unit of consciousness for those people who are listening that really don't know what an IUOC is, the individuated unit of consciousness isn't really affected by what the body does, but the free will awareness unit is affected by what the body does. So does that help kind of answer that question? Yeah, that, that does actually clear things up. Maybe one little follow-up on that one. Um, so that makes me wonder also if um, when we learn to do these sort of paranormal things through um, practicing meditation, is it that we train our consciousness to do these things? Or is it more that we um, change the body with our intent, which then enables us to do those things? Both. Both take place, and in general, it's the consciousness that leads, but then the body follows. So the consciousness learns to access information, and as it practices that, the body changes in order to accommodate it. So yes, so you might think that, you know, like the opposite of, you know, ADD. You know, that would be somebody who can focus and can concentrate and doesn't have a lot of noise well if you are if your consciousness your free will awareness unit is working on getting rid of the noise being able to focus you know developing its intuitive side then as it practices that and does that the body will begin to change to that opposite add state you know a state where the brain chemistry and and other you know things in the body other biology starts to modify itself to support that state so that's why these things take time to develop. You know, it's not necessarily just the consciousness is a slow learner and has to, you know, practice a really long time uh, in order to get things. I mean, some of that can be true. But for the most part, it's the body has to change itself in order to support the things that the free will awareness unit is trying to do. So that is a slower process. That's why it takes a lot of practice because you're really modifying the physical system along with the understanding within the consciousness. Both those things have to work together. The consciousness tends to work quickly. It tends to see things, get understandings, you know, get the information down at the being level. But if the body can't support that yet, then it's got that constraint. The person has a hard time, you know, doing these things. So it's, it's a combination of both. Okay, yeah, that that explains everything. It also explains the whole uh, Kundalini phenomenon, I guess, um, where people meditate for many years and all of a sudden their body shifts into mm -hmm. almost a new kind of state. So it makes sense now that that has to adapt to the consciousness, basically. Yes. So when they make when they've meditated for a long time and they're on that edge of making progress then sometimes they'll notice that the body goes through a kind of a, a major upgrade is the way they see it. But it's not really so much an upgrade. It's just all the things that their body has been doing to support their, their, uh, you know, their mental work or their consciousness work will all kind of come together and support each other. And suddenly things start happening a lot more quickly. So you have a whole bunch of maybe, you know, a half a dozen independent things in the body that are going on. And when they all get to the point that they can work together, then things will take place a lot more quickly. So, yes, a lot of the um, Kundalini experience is, is that. It's a, um, you know, I've often said that it's, it's kind of, uh, uh, you know, like a, a, a rite of passage that you, you know, that you get once you're in the point once you have developed yourself to the point of of being able to express that that uh, higher level of awareness, 
your your body, your consciousness, everything kind of goes through a little change that makes everything easier afterwards. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. That's very interesting. Um, so I have one more question. Um, it's not really related. Uh, it's about death and non-existence. So um, the more we become aware of our true nature as consciousness, the more we lose our fear of dying, since we realize that the death of the body is just a simulated thing that doesn't affect us at a fundamental level. However, the possibility of real death still exists in the sense that information can be deleted. I know this hypothetical scenario is probably extremely unlikely to ever happen, but I've spent some time contemplating what it would mean if my IUOC were to be deleted completely. Somehow, the more I contemplate this, the more I realize that that really wouldn't be such a big deal. But I'm curious about your take on this. How would you feel if LCS contacted you and told you that they were going to delete your IUOC? Would you be upset or afraid? And if not, why not? Well, I can, I can, uh, I can say that no, I would not be uh, upset and I would not be afraid and I would agree with you. It wouldn't be such a big deal. Um, answering the question, why not is a little harder. Uh, have to give that a few, a few moments. I suspect the answer to why not is that when you grow up, you let go of, you know, you let go of the capital I. You let go of it's, it's not about you. It's about others. And if it's not about you, then it doesn't really matter a whole lot, you know, if the you disappears or doesn't disappear because it's not about you. So it just doesn't matter. And, you know, you, we can justify that in a sense of, well, if that's better for the system, okay, the system says it wants to do that. Well, it would only say it wanted to do that because it was better for the system. And if that's better for the system, then sure, why not do whatever's better for the system? Because you're still a part of the system in the sense that you are, you know, a piece of that, that larger consciousness system. It's not the system. It may be able to delete the information, but that's, that defines you that's in your IUOC. But if that somehow leads to better growth for the system, you know, it's okay. If the system needs you, they can re, you know, they can reestablish you just as easy. You see, that, that data is, would still, may still be around and it could re, reestablish you or you could be reestablished as something else that doesn't have anything to do with your past IUOC. Only new IUOC. Or maybe not at all, but you're the part of the system and the system keeps on chugging and evidently chugs better because you're gone. Otherwise it wouldn't delete you. So in that case, you know, I just don't see that it would seem to be a big deal. It's just not that important. So I think that's probably the reason it's it's about other. And in this case, the other is the system. It's not about you. So, yeah, I would have the same sort of feel that you found. The more you think about it, the less significant it really seems to be. And, you know, I can think of an instance, perhaps, um, not that the system would want to delete so much as let's say that there's a that uh, we have a lot of population growth here for the last, uh, you know, what, 10,000 years or so or last 100,000 years. Humans have been around for about uh, about 200,000 years, something like that. So it's. Um, been a lot of population growth. Every time you have a bigger population, you have more uh, IUOCs playing in the game, assuming that they're all played by individual IUOCs. So the number of IUOCs goes up and up and up. So let's say that we go up and we're 10 or 15 billion and something terrible happens. You know, a big comet comes out of nowhere and, you know, hits the earth and splashes up so much dirt, dirt and debris that the sun doesn't shine for a year. And now there are you know, all the plants die and then all the animals die because they depend on the plants and so on right up the food chain and there isn't much left, you know. So we're back to the point that there's maybe multi-celled things and single-celled things and, and uh, 
maybe uh, things that still live in the you know the dark places in the ocean and other things. So it doesn't get rid of all life, but it has to start over. Well, in that case, if we started with well, even the seven and a half billion of us that there are now, there'd be seven and a half billion IOCs with without a, a VR to uh, you know incarnate in. So what's the system to do? And I would think that the system could recover because it could go back to a previous state where that VR was working, and then it could branch from there, and it could eliminate the, you know, the asteroid because this is a virtual reality. So it's just a virtual asteroid, you know, it could do whatever. So it could recover. But what does it, what does it do during the time it's recovering with all those IUOCs? Well, they either go some other virtual reality or they just, they could go back to the chat room, I guess, or they may just not be, uh, not be animated anymore. You know, they may just be standing by. In other words, the data is in the database that defines them, but unless they're in a virtual reality, they can't have experience. It's virtual reality that gives them the opportunity for experience. You see, the virtual reality sets the constraints that defines the context of experience. If there are no constraints, you know, I guess the chat room is the, you know, is, is like the simplest of all virtual realities. The only constraints are the, are the communication protocols. That's the, that's it. So within those, they can experience uh, sending messages back and forth, but they don't experience things like a body or choices other than what to say, you know, what, what to receive and what to send. So you could have a, a lot of IUOCs with really nothing to do for a while. Uh, and even, when, even if it reconstitutes the VR, it may be at a lower population. You know, it's hard to say. So, you know, that practically could happen. So you, you may just retain the data that defines Tom and Eric, but not actually play them in a VR. In which case, the entity is just there, you know, existing, if you will, but not having experience. So it wouldn't be aware of its existence. It, it would be like point consciousness. It would just be aware that it is, but it wouldn't have any particular existence. Or it could put them in the chat room. So that's, you know, that's a, that's a similar kind of thing. But then it really wouldn't matter, would it? You'd just go on doing whatever you could do chatting in the chat room or just being in the point consciousness state or neither of those. And, you know, you could just kind of go to sleep if you like, you know, it, it wouldn't matter. It's, I, I kind of come to the same conclusion you do, you know, so what, you know, the system will do whatever it needs to do. And if it puts, you know, end up logging onto a different VR because that one still has a lot of space and their population is growing. So we all kind of shift over to that one or the system starts up a new VR or backs this one up or it doesn't matter. The system will figure out what it is it needs to do and it will employ its resources to the best extent and the most profitable extent possible. And if you're part of that, you know, uh, deployment of resources, well, okay, you'll keep on chugging. And if you're not, well, the system will keep on chugging too. So all in all, I guess I see myself more as a piece of the system than I do as, as an individual. Yeah, that's uh, one of the things that I realized when I was contemplating this is um, I was looking at other people walking around. And what I realized is that I'm really also, even though th those are different free will awareness units or IUCs, I'm really also them except from an experiencing myself from another perspective so that if, if Eric disappears, then there's still like the, I, th I guess the most fundamental I is still there. Even if Eric isn't there, does that, does that make any sense in, in terms of your model? Well, you know, it depends on what, the, what your most fundamental I, you know, I is. You know, we are pieces of this larger conscious system, and we say that we're all one. We're all pieces of this one system. So when it gets down to it, we are, you know, everything and everything is us. We're just a piece of something much, much bigger. And when we get into that uh, that very special state where we 
kind of, what do we say? We begin, begin to experience things as the larger conscious system does. And we see that we are, we, we lose our identity. We see we're one with everything. We feel we're one with all the people, even with all the leaves and all the blades of grass and everything. There's no identity. We just are one with everything. Well, you can still have that even if you don't have Eric. See, right. that's a part, that's a part of it. So you're not any longer an individual identity, but you can still be an identity with the whole. You're still part of the larger consciousness system. Now it's possible that the system could just take, uh, you know, all of your bits and, you know, erase them or something. Then there wouldn't be anything really defined as Eric, but you'd still be a part of that system. You know, the system can't take its bits and somehow throw them out of the system. You know, it, it can't do that. So, you know, so it's as, as part of the system, there'll always be that view, not as Eric, but as the system. Right. Yeah. It's a bit confusing to think about, but uh, I guess that clears things up. Yeah, well, one thing, one, one other thing that I also realize is that in a sense, we die almost, in this sense, we die almost every day because my IUOC, what it is today, is not the IUOC that it was a year ago. So in that sense, you could also say that we almost, we die every moment. But, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, life and existence is a, is a long stream of unchanging change. When I mean unchanging, I mean that it never stops changing. It's, it's existence and growth require change. If you're not growing, you're not evolving, then you're static and you're not making choices. If you're not making choices, you know, time doesn't move. You know, you get back to the, you know, to the, the, uh, you know, nothing. There's nothing happening there. So as long as, you know, you have awareness, then you have to be growing. And if you're growing, you have change. If you're changing, you become a different person all the time. And that old person just disappears. So you could think that we're being reborn all the time at, at uh, hopefully lower and lower states of entropy. But some of us get uh, reborn at higher states of entropy because we didn't do so well the last time, but making poor choices. But yeah, that's, that would be another way of thinking of it. When we change ourselves, that's the whole point. When we grow up, we are a different person. We're not that same person. But most of us think of ourselves as that same person that's just getting better. And that's just an easier way to think of it. But one doesn't have to think of it that way. One can think of this person as really not even defined. It's something that's constantly moving and changing. And that's, that's correct. That's otherwise the, the other, the only other possibility is that there's no choice, no time, no consciousness, no free will. And there's basically nothing. But as long as there's something that's evolving, then we are not static beings. There is no Eric. You know, if you think about who you were, you know, say 10 incarnations ago, you know, that's gone now. You know, that character, whoever that was 10 incarnations ago, is not playing anymore. Not that particular character. But you're a part of that whole. And that character is a part of you as well. You see? So in a way, all the choices that character made also leads to your quality and the choices that you make. So in a way, you never die as Eric because Eric, the individual, made these choices, and these choices are all are going to affect what the next incarnation and the next incarnation, you know, how they're going to act and how they're going to do it. So you kind of live on, live on through all the incarnations because of the, you know, the choices that you made as part of a long chain that's going to define what this other entity is many incarnations from now. So you can look at it that way and say that Eric never dies. You say, it just depends on how you want to interpret the data. And, uh, you know, these are all kind of equivalent viewpoints. They all lead to the same conclusion. They're just different ways of seeing it. So some people choose to see it very negatively. Oh no, you know, Eric is going to be gone. There won't be an Eric anymore. There'll be somebody else and it won't be me. Well, <clears throat> that is someone who, has a lot of ego. 
They're very interested in capital I and me and preserving me. And me is the most important person they know. And in that case, it's scary that you're going to be, you know, reunited with your IUOC and cease to exist as an individual because you are very focused on being that, that individual rather than being at one with everything else. So it's just different perspectives. If you look at it very positively, then it seems like a wonderful plan. If you look at it from a negative viewpoint because you have a lot of ego, then it seems like a, you know, a horrible plan. So it's, it uh, depends. So the less ego you have, the better it looks. Your interpretation gets, you know, happier and happier the more you let go of the ego as all the rest of your life gets happier and happier as well. So that's the, I think that's the way it works out. So those who have little fear, little ego and few beliefs, then they find being part of the bigger picture enough. They don't have to have a, you know, a, 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 an individuality that separates them from the one. They can just be a part of something bigger than themselves and, it's okay. Uh, that was great. Thank you so much, Tom. <laughs> You're welcome. We have Bodan here today. And Bodan comes to us with a couple of questions from Russian-speaking readers of My Big Toe. So we'll be interested to hear your questions, Bodan. Please go ahead. Well, I'd be interested in hearing how we have Russian uh, readers of My Big Toe. <laughs> that, would be, that would be a good thing to understand first. <laughs> Yes, I opened the Facebook page and uh, uh, there are some people who are interested actually. So they asked questions. Those are not my question, but they asked me to ask your question. Ah, okay. Uh, so the first question was, uh, do I have a right to change someone's free will? If uh, I want to make the choice with my free will, even if it can be wrong. Uh, for example, if uh, a person is uh, alcohol addicted, or uh, some other addiction, uh, and I want to change uh, his or her free will in order to stop his addiction and help him or her? Well, there are those instances where it not only is allowable, but it's your duty to overrun somebody else's free will. And the most obvious ones are with your children. When your children are two and three and four years old and they'd like to go play in the street, you say no. And if their free will says, oh, I want to play in the street anyway, you put a lock on the gate and put a fence around your yard so that they can't. Okay, that's overrunning their free will. So when you have people who are not capable of making their own choices because they're too young to have enough information to make choices you know to keep themselves alive and to and to uh, uh, grow up then yes it's your duty to overrun their free will and take care of them so that they don't hurt themselves now that gets a lot stickier as the people you're talking about aren't children anymore they're adults when you're an adult you have the you know kind of the, the right to have your own attitude and you do things by your own free will now you can you can talk to somebody who uh, is let's say on a destructive path, and I think that depends on on you and the individual. If you get to the point that you talk to said say an alcoholic and you say, "You know that alcohol is just ruining your life, it's ruining your relationships, it's ruining your career, it's ruining everything. You really need to quit, and I can help you i can I can pay the bills to send you through uh, rehab. Um, you know, I can come over and, and talk to you for a couple of hours every night just to keep you company. So, you know, it's not loneliness that you're whatever we can talk. We can send you to a therapist and find out why you went to the alcohol in the first place. You know, why are you self-medicating? What is it? What pain is it that you're trying to escape? And let's see if we can get rid of that pain. Then you won't have the need to go to the alcohol. Then you just have to get over the habit. Uh, there's lots of things you can do for somebody's an alcoholic. But if they say no, no, and no, that they don't want you to mess in, they don't want any help, they're doing what they want to do, and if they are not insane, they're just making poor choices, 
I would say you kind of have to let them go. You have to let them make their own choices. But now let's say that they are also mentally not capable. Maybe they're, maybe they're uh, mentally retarded and they only have the mindset of a six year old. Well, then you can interfere because again, they don't have enough, you know, going on to, to help themselves. Then you want to be a little more intrusive. So it depends on the situation. If it's just that, you know, you have to, you have to not be in the position where you'd like this person to be different. So you're going to make that person be different. You see, that's not a good way to do it. You have to let them make their own choices, even if those choices are self-destructing to that individual. But that doesn't mean that you can't put a lot of time in trying to help them make better decisions. You can do that. But if you're going to take that alcoholic, kidnap him one night, stick him in a room, you know, lock him in a, in a padded cell where there is no alcohol and slide food under the door for, through a little slit and keep him there for, you know, for six months or a year until they dry out and get over it. Well, that's pretty drastic. And you have overrun their, their choices at that point. Now, maybe that would be helpful. Maybe not. You know, maybe they would say thank you afterwards, but maybe not. You know, they may go right back to it just because that pain that caused them to go to it in the first place is still there. But maybe if it wasn't pain, it was just habit because they hung out with a lot of people who drank a lot, so they ended up getting there too. Well, that's a different story. You know, now maybe they might thank you for it. So you kind of have to look at all the, you know, all the possibilities and kind of see where you think the low entropy choice is. Is the low entropy choice to intervene on somebody's behalf because they are limited in their capacity to take care of themselves and make their own decisions? Well, maybe then that's the time to intervene, or maybe that's the time to leave it alone. It depends on case by case. And what the way you approach it is you look at all the possibilities the way it might work out. If you come to the conclusion that the the highest probability is going to be that it'll help that person, that that person will be better, they'll be happier, they will, you know, you will help them uh, begin to evolve in a positive direction again. If it's about them, not about you, then it probably is okay to intervene. But if it's about you, I don't like that person like that. I want them to be different. You know, I want them to not be an alcoholic. I want them to not do these things that are, that are hurting. It hurts me to see them hurt themselves. So it's really about me and what I want. Then the intervention is probably not a good thing because you're coming at it from the wrong, you know, from the wrong viewpoint. You're imposing your free will of what, of what you want on other people. So it just depends on the individual, the individual making the choice and where the low entropy path is. But people should not be um, afraid to make choices just because they don't know how it's going to turn out. So the way we learn in life is we come up with pro a program or we come up with a set of choices based on what we think is going to be the low entropy path. And if that's what we've done, we've considered it, it's not about us, it is about them, so we make our choices and we do it, it may turn out great or it may turn out bad. If it turns out badly, then we learn something. Oh, all right, I guess I didn't see all the possibilities of the way this might have worked out. I've learned something. I won't make that mistake again. You see, so you shouldn't be afraid to do the, the best you can with due diligence, you think about it, you, you look for your own ego in the process, you decide you need to step in and help this person and override their free will, and if it turns out badly, learn something from it. Where was your mistake? What is it that you didn't see? How did you not anticipate that, that bad result? So you learn from it and you go on. So, I, you, know, you know, it is a difficult decision to make, but we shouldn't not make decisions because they're difficult. We shouldn't not make choices because we don't know how it's going to turn out. 
We should do the best we can and then learn from it. That's how we, that's how we grow. That's how we learn up. You know, that's how we move up the, the evolutionary ladder. So I'd encourage people to do the best they can and be aware of how that works out and learn from it. Because there are some times when it would be a good thing to override somebody's free will, particularly if they're little, or if you think that that's really going to be helpful, but it's probably not going to be helpful if you're doing it because you want it that way. That's somebody you really care about and you see them hurting themselves and you want to stop it because it's about you. That's not the right reason. Now you're interfering with their life, not really trying to help them. It seems like you're trying to help them, but you're really trying to get what you want. So that's kind of the best answer I can give. It's not an, it's not an easy choice to make. I think, I think it's pretty clear. Thank you, Tom. And the uh, uh, second question was uh, about the relationship. Somebody's asking uh, when a couple uh, has a different sex drive, what is the best way to deal with it? Is uh, man, if, if the man or woman needs to have more sex, for example, than other one, is there any way to get rid of the need? And uh, uh, in other aspects, everything uh, looks uh, pretty much good, except this issue. Well, and, those issues often turn into, you know, somebody has a need and they want their need met. Well, that's self-focused. That's self-centered. It's their need that needs to be met. They want this need met. They feel bad that their need isn't being met. You see, they want to change things so that their need gets met. All of that is self-focused. If you let go of the ego and the fear, well, there's a fear there that, that fears that it won't get its, its needs met and it will live its life without having its needs met. You see, and that's a fear that it won't find what it wants. Well, you let go of that fear and you let go of that ego and make it about the other person. And that question really doesn't come up. If you make it about the other person. So let's say you have those two people and they're out of balance in that way. They don't have the same uh, idea of when enough is enough. They have very different ideas of that. Well, if each one of them doesn't have the fear and doesn't have the ego, then each one of them will try to will try to be what the other needs. You see, each one of them will, uh, you know, if they're the one that has the the lesser drive, then they will try to make up for that. They will try to give the other person that has the higher drive what the higher drive wants because it's about them, not about themselves. And the person with the higher drive will try to keep the person with the lower drive from, you know, from feeling bad. They try to give them what they want. So as long as everybody's trying to give the other person what they want because they're grown up, there isn't a problem. It'll work out without issue. The problem is when both people have ego and have fear and both want what they want and they just don't know how to get it out of the other. The one of them is overbearing and demanding too much and the other one, uh, you know, is uh, underwhelming and, and uh, willing to give too little. And they don't like that because it's not what they want. So I'd say that the problem is really ego. The problem is fear. And if you get rid of those, then there is no problem. It just goes away. So it's the, it's the need. It's the I want. That's the issue. So just make it about the other and not about self and see how that works out. Because if you make it about other, you give that other person the freedom to be differently, you see. So that that person that has a has the lower sex drive, if if the if the partner, you know, tries to please them, that will make them feel better about themselves and about their partner, which will make that partner with the lower sex drive actually have a higher sex drive. You see, it tends to the problems tend to solve themselves. One of the reasons the low sex drive partner feels low sex drive is because they feel put upon. They feel pushed. They feel constantly being, uh, you know, pushed places that uh, doesn't feel good to me and when or feel to them. And whenever you feel pushed, you have a 
a basic instinct to push back. So if somebody's pushing on you, then you tend to push back. You push the other way. Whereas if they weren't pushing on you, you might be able to develop in that way. But you can't if they're trying to force you to do it, you see. So things tend to work out really well if it's about other from both sides. Then the problem will disappear and fix itself. There won't be a problem. But as long as the two people are both reacting to their own needs and wants and trying to make the other person satisfy what they need, it's going to be a conflict and it's going to be a problem. So that would be the the answer to that. You need to grow up, get rid of the fear, get rid of the ego, make it about the other and the problem will disappear. Uh, May I clarify you? What about if uh, uh, the other person understand the limitation uh, of, uh, for example, with higher drive, understand the limitation of a person who has lower drive and she's trying to get rid of uh, his or her own uh, needs just to meet uh, and be in a good relationship with with the other person who doesn't have these high requirements. You know, the person is uh, willing to decrease uh, uh, yeah. needs just to be on the same level with other person. Yes. Okay. That's very good. That that is a you know that's about them, not about themselves. So they're willing to to uh, you know accommodate the other person's needs, and that's good. And that provides a, a an environment that raises the probability that the other person, the one with the lower drive, will actually change and their drive will increase because they're no longer being pushed. They're no longer being being manipulated or, or they no longer have to put up with uh, being, you know, hearing or, or noticing how inadequate they are. It's that inadequacy that makes them feel, you know, the, the low drive. So, yes, you can take the person and would say with the higher drive will tend to just suck that up and and make themselves such that the other person feels really good about themselves. And as they do, it's likely that they will change too. They will change in a positive way. So that would certainly be the best way to, to approach that. And you have to get out of the idea, oh, you know, I have to I have to suffer in silence, you know, so I'm gonna pretend to be what this other person wants, but I'm really suffering here in silence. I just keep my mouth shut and I won't complain, but I'm suffering. Well, that doesn't work. That's just pretending. That's changing your behavior. It's not changing yourself. You actually have to see that other person as somebody you want to please. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for bringing those questions to us, Bodan. Frank, coming to us from the waterways. Hi, Donna. Thank you. Hi, Tom. Um, Hello, Frank. Okay, two questions. Let me just get them up here. Um, the first was about the uh, higher level rule set. I think, uh, Tom, when I read the trilogy, I read something about that you mentioned a higher level rule set and a lower level rule set um, for the virtual reality. Now, in most of the videos I saw, I think you only... If, um, mention the lower level rule set which i would define as the one that uh, um, uh, defines how things happen in the, in the virtual reality so basically the the playing field but if i remember correctly and i couldn't find it back in the book but uh, i think you also mentioned a higher level rule set that defines what's profitable for for the players in the virtual reality um but i don't think there was an awful lot about it in the book. So I was just wondering if you could expand a bit on that, um, if indeed you would still make a distinction in, in this way. What 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 is the higher level rule set? Well, I'll have to think about that one. It's been a long time. It's been uh, you know, a decade and a half since I wrote those books and probably since the last time I read them, I'll have to, <laughs> I'll have to reacquaint myself with, uh, with that higher level rule set. Um, I'm trying to think of what it what it uh, possibly would be. Can, can I give I you? May have, I may I may have, well, Go ahead, go ahead, Frank. So, for example, if it, if uh, if if I actually got it right, and it's it's about defining what's profitable for the players. So, is it 
Is it basically uh, the feelings and perceptions you have? So basically, if you do something good for others, that it makes you feel good. So is that something that needs to be defined by a rule set or is that inherent in consciousness itself? That consciousness, because of its, its drive for evolution, always has this uh, built into it anyway? Or, or is it defined by the rule set? Okay, if, if the whole game is about uh, getting the players to cooperate, then of course they should feel good when they do so. So that needs to be defined in, in this high-level rule set, for example. Yeah. No, I don't think that would be it. I would think if I were to right now, not really remembering what I said then, but uh, I would say if I, if I were to define a higher level rule set, it would be um, the rules and constraints that are placed on, say, the larger kinds of system or the rendering engine. The rendering engine can only do certain things within constraints, right? It, it needs to have efficient programming not sloppy programming that's a constraint it has constraints as far as you know it's a finite system which gives it constraints as far as you know how many bits can it you know can it continue to uh you know to work with what is its upper limits so it needs to have you know that's that would be a constraint as well uh another constraint in this virtual reality would be that whatever it draws here, you know, whatever it uh, uh, renders in this virtual reality has to fit with our with our history. You know, it can't be out of place. It has to be in in sequence with everything else that's happened in a, such a way that it seems natural that it should be there. So that's a that's a constraint on it. Uh, it also has to abide by um, the lower level rule set. You know, and that is, you know, the physics and the chemistry and all the rest of it. So there are a sets of constraints that are rules that the system has to go by in order to produce a virtual reality and to, uh, you know, have that reality a, a good trainer for us to evolve in. If it didn't, if it didn't, uh, follow those rules, then our virtual reality would be kind of goofy and would be hard to, you know, hard to learn in. Because consequences would no longer have direct relationships to, you know, to actions. You know, you could teleport around, uh, there's, instead of, you know, having to go contiguously from one, one, uh, you know, distant cell to the next. So there would be a lot of things that would make our reality less functional. Mm-hmm. So it has, so the system has boundaries. And I'd say all of those boundaries would make up a higher level rule set that the system needs to abide by. Um, just because it's finite and just because this virtual reality has a purpose. So it creates those rules for itself in order to optimize what it does and how it does it. So that would be what would come to my mind as the higher level rule set. Not some, not something about, about feelings. So there's, there's more than just our rule set out there. There's, there's a rule set that the system needs to abide by as well. Otherwise the things it does would be less effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another part of that, another part of that rule set might be that, uh, you know, the system learns that, uh, bullying and pushing and demanding are suboptimal. They don't work well. You know, that, uh, the way you get optimal uh, growth out of the system is to leave it alone and let it develop and evolve in its own way. That if you start going down into the system and trying to arrange things so that the, you know, so that the, the people logged on, well, you know, you, you help them figure it out. You know, you give, you know, you, you interfere with it. You don't let it just evolve. Well, that's, you know, probably a rule in its mind is you don't do that because no doubt it tried to do that and it didn't work out very well. So then it comes up with another constraint on itself. Don't mess with, you know, the, the, uh, those free will awareness units that are making choices. Let them make the choices as they see the choices. If you interfere with it, then their choices are not really their own choices. You know, they don't own it. You're, you're, you're uh, messing up their game. So, you know, those, that's another constraint that the system would put on itself. And yeah. it has, it has size constraints. How many virtual realities does it need? How many players does it need playing in these virtual realities? You know, when's enough enough? So that's all those things are kind of higher, higher order concerns 
that also can't be just random things. They have to, you know, they have to be, uh, um, there has to be rules. There has to be things that optimize. So that's what I, that would sort of come to me now. Now, whether that's what I said in the book, I really don't remember, but uh, that's what seems like the most obvious thing as we talk now. Yeah, well, but that definitely makes a lot of sense, and then maybe I should uh, make the effort to to try to look it up again in the book and find it back. And uh, if if I got something wrong, I mean, clearly it it wasn't wasn't uh, as a term. It didn't seem to be uh, so important to you. So uh, um, then, yeah, maybe I can look it up again and clarify next time if if I got something wrong. Okay, well, but okay, yeah. one other thing I'd say to make it easier to look it up, if you get a Kindle version. You know the ebook. Then you do. Then you can do word search, mm -hmm. and then you can search on the phrase "higher level rule set," and it ought to take you right to it. Okay. You know that would be a much easier than trying to f go through, you know, almost 900 pages looking for certain words to appear. <laughs> that would be a long process. So I'd suggest the you know get the Kindle and do word searches. That would make it easier. Okay. Uh, can I just ask then, because um, I now, uh, before you explain this now, uh, I had the idea that, uh, okay, it might be about how I feel if I'm um, making profitable choices. So so where would that come from then? You know, that um, if I'm on the right path and I do something for others, I feel happy. I have a, what, what you say always, that you, you have a good life, a happy life. Mm -hmm. uh, so where, where does that feeling then come from? Is Is that built into consciousness itself? Yes, I'd say that's just a part of consciousness. That's consciousness realizing uh, what works and what doesn't. You know, conscious realizing that uh, that uh, when it does, when it makes good choices, the results are happy results. The results, you know, make it feel better. So that's just kind of an awareness of the situation and an awareness of what works and what doesn't. And when things do work and everything comes together and everybody seems to be happy, uh You know, it's hard not to be happy yourself. So, yes, I'd say that that's just the nature of consciousness, being aware. That's just an awareness of of things. When you have a lot of fear, um, your awareness is just the opposite. You see the you see the dark side of everything instead of the you know instead of that uh, silver lining. All you can see is the dark cloud. You can't see the point that oh well okay that that was very tough, but I learned something. You know, all you can see is oh boy, this is really tough. Um, it's not fair that I should have all this tough stuff. And that's just ego talking. So in one, you're happy because you learned something. Now you're better. You've grown from it. And the other one, you're unhappy because it isn't the way you want it. So, yeah, I think that's just intrinsic to consciousness and, and awareness and evolution. Mm -hmm. Uh, in fact, this this leads nicely to my second question, and that's uh, again <laughs> about growing up, and and uh, in in this case about the the paradox of of bootstrapping. You always say we have to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, mm -hmm. and this is of course a way to describe a paradox. And I think the the par the seeming paradox is that if you're um, high entropy and you're on in this vicious circle of making poor choices. How do you get out of that? How do you, and, and I'm really interested now uh, about the mechanics. Um, how do you get out of this vicious circle? And what is it actually that makes you um, then suddenly realize, no, I need to make a good choice now? Because you also say that uh, if I want to grow up, I need to be authentic. So if somebody is high entropy and then being authentic, that would mean that that person would then probably continue to make bad choices. Um, so, so how uh, does the change at the being level come about? Well, if you're high entropy and you make bad choices, uh, you know you're you are uh, authentic, and you're high entropy, and you continue to make bad choices, your life gets more and more dysfunctional, more and more dysfunctional. You become more and more unhappy. You you start to become depressed because all of your choices are are high entropy choices. And that is authentically you, but it keeps leading to more and more dysfunction in your life and more and more unhappiness. And the thing that turns it around is you have to get to the point where you see, where you realize that your high entropy choices are the cause of the dysfunction. 
If you can so see that. Realization? Yeah, I say that realization and the sense that what you've been doing just doesn't work. You know, you get to the point, it's almost like uh, described that you get to the, uh, what is it, the, the, um, there's a word for that. When you get to the very bottom and there's no place, you know, you, know, you can't go, you can't dig a hole any deeper. Uh, the dark night of the soul is what that's called. You know, you get to this point where just everything is totally as awful as it can be. And there's just no way that it could get worse. And at that point, you tend to give up and you throw up your hands and say, okay, I'm going to stop trying to make things better. Stop trying to fix this and fix that because every time I do that, I make bad choices in my, my effort to make it better, and it just keeps getting worse. And you come to this conclusion that the only way to change is to change your outlook and the way you make choices. So it's that you get to a point where you realize that you need that lower entropy choices are better and that your problem is yourself and that life will get better if you just change what you're doing. And a lot of times that's not so much an intellectual thing as it is an emotional thing. When you hit that dark night of the soul and you just throw up your hands and say, I give up. I'm going to stop trying to force things to be the way I want. And as soon as you stop trying to force things, everything starts to get better. And then you start seeing the world from a different viewpoint. You let go of that negative tunnel vision that you had. Everything is awful. awful. You know, everything sucks. Everything is terrible. And suddenly that viewpoint goes away and it just is what it is. It's not really terrible. It's your viewpoints, your interpretation that's terrible. It just is what it is. And you are what you are. And now you need to get in gear and start interacting with what is and get out of this uh, negative interpretation cycle that you've created for yourself. So when you get to that point, then you turn around and start going the other way. But often people have to hit bottom before they can stop that downward, you know, process and go back the other way. So but that's, it wouldn't be a fair assessment to say, okay, but then it's just the fear of more pain that leads me to reconsider my view. So I'm, I'm just acting out of fear. No, it's not the fear of more pain. As long as there's a fear of pain, I guess you continue downward. You get to the point where there can't be any more pain, where the pain is as much pain as there is. And there, there's no point in fearing any more pain because you have maximum pain already. Can't get any more painful. So at that point, you let go of the fear. It already is. You're already there. There's no fear that you can descend any lower. You see, and at that point, people tend to let go. And now they have an opportunity to see things differently, you know, from a different viewpoint. So I don't think it's just a fear of more pain. Now, you might get that before you hit bottom. You may say, well, now I see what's going on now. I see that I'm making myself more and more miserable. I need to stop and go the other way. And, you know, that's, again, that's a carrot and stick. Okay? The, the carrot would be less pain. And you change your mind and start working at it. So in that case, the it's not so much a fear of, of more pain as it is you don't want any more pain. And you see that there's another way. But that's really before. You get to that before you really hit bottom. You know, you don't really hit bottom until you've come to the conclusion that it can't get any worse. You know, fear or no fear, there is there is no more pain. Pain is 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 hundred percent saturated. And after that, you kind of let go. And when you let go, you let go of that interpretation, and you begin to see things differently. So I've talked to any number of people that have done that. They've they descended down to the point that they let go of their focus on the negative. They stop focusing on the negative. They start really focusing on anything. They just start being. And then they realize that that world out there just is the way it is. It's not really aggressively trying to get them. You know, they, they, they're not really victims of an evil world. You know, the world is just the way it is and they need to interact with it in a, in a way that's more positive. And sometimes that's the beginning of going from unhappy to happy is when you hit that bottom, that bottom rung on the ladder. So the pulling yourself up of your bootstraps just means that in general, a giant leap is not expected. You know, you don't suddenly make big changes. Uh, I, and I make the analogy in my book that it's like an athlete. 
you know, if, if you want to, if you want to run a marathon, if you want to be able to run 25 miles and do it all fairly quickly, you're not going to say, okay, I, I'm psyched for this. Now I'm going to go run my, my 20, you know, five miles. You won't be able to do it. You have to work on it and work on it and train for it and train for it. And maybe two years later, you might be able to run that 25 miles, but only if you work on it very consistently. And that's what I mean by pulling yourself up to the bootstraps. You have to take it one little step at a time. It's something you're building and each, each new step builds on the last step. See, so it's, it's very difficult to make a great leap. You, it's not that that has never happened, but when it does happen, it's because people really were ready to make those changes. They really had it all together and just that last chunk comes into place and suddenly they have a, a big aha and they take a leap forward. But they've already done all the work to get themselves up to the point that they were really ready for that. So it takes work and you have to develop yourself into something different than it is one in ten at a time. That's the growing up process. It's not uh, It's not something that you can leap to. It's something you have to earn. <laughs>